Hi friends, welcome to the Artist's Blend. Today we'll be talking about the lives of certain composers that you may know the name of, but not necessarily anything about them. So grab your mug, and let's get talking. talking about like a f fun stuff today that I didn't think would be as fun as it turned out to be. Right. I, I was I, I will say one of mine is what you would picture. I mean, picture Charlie Brown teacher wah, 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 wah. In, uh, in reading and researching I was like, yes, this is interesting, but also I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah. Here. Um, well, before we jump into our composers, um, well, I'm, I'm doing um, a little bit about Gustav Mahler and then a little bit about Sergei Rachmaninoff. And I'm doing Claudio Giovanni Antonio Monteverdi, and... Bless you. I know, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to try his full name. Tchaikovsky for everybody. Great, Tchaikovsky. <laughs> um, but before we do that, just to talk a little bit about the coffee. So today, we are having a little bit of uh, The Endeavor, which is from uh, Endeavor Coffee Roasters. If you haven't listened yeah. yet, we did an episode with... Kevin, the founder, um, a couple episodes ago. So regardless of whether or not Endeavor Coffee Roasters makes any profit, they're always donating, um, even if it puts them in the red, they're always donating to Helping Hands Grateful Hearts, uh, which is a charity that builds houses and playgrounds and community centers and all sorts of really amazing things uh, in Guatemala, Honduras, and Costa Rica. Um, and yeah, the people who run Helping Hands Grateful Hearts are the people who run the coffee company. So it's a passion project of theirs to help fund uh, the charity work that they do. So um, it's a great, great company. Uh, but yeah, we, he sent us a few uh, bags of coffee. So we're going to be trying some of those in the next few episodes. But this one is the yeah. Endeavor. They're a flagship blend. We'll give our thoughts on it, but it's just warm and nice to hold right now. So. That's all I'll say right now. <laughs> yeah. All right. You want to start us off today, Easton? Sure. Yeah. Um. Do you want to start with uh? What do you want to hear about? Rachmaninoff or Mahler? Uh, I want to hear about Mahler. Cool. We'll start with Mahler. Or Moliere. Oh, Moliere. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah. I get you. Uh. So Gustav Mahler. Uh. He was an Austro-Bohemian Romantic composer, and he was one of the leading conductors of his generation. Um, as a composer, he was sort of like the bridge between 19th century uh, Austro-German tradition and the modernism, which kind of came around in the early 20th century. Um, and then his his status as a conductor was certainly established beyond question in his lifetime. But his his actual compositions, his music, which he's known for now, gained immense popularity only after... He died, uh, and it was uh, long periods of, of relative neglect that he received on his music, which included a ban on his music in a lot of Europe during the Nazi era because he was Jewish. Interesting. Uh, his parents were Jewish. He was born in Bohemia, which was then part of the Austrian Empire, to um, Ashkenazi Jewish parents. So uh, a lot of his music was banned w during his life. Or it was banned, excuse me, it was banned after he died, even, uh, through 1945. Yep. And after 1945, when Germany was defeated, is when his compositions were rediscovered and got a, a resurgence of popularity. And then he became one of the most frequently performed and recorded of all composers, um, like, of all time. So, yep. uh, some interesting things about Mahler. He was born in Bohemia, like we said. He was fascinated by military music and folk music that he had heard since birth. Yeah. Um, and when he was four years old is when he started reproducing and composing music on the accordion and piano. So, prodigy at its finest. 
Um, his father was self-educated, but his mother was actually part of the, like, what you would have called at the time the cultured society. Um, and as a result, there was sort of some, uh, there was tension at home between his father and mom. Um, and it manifested in his father's abuse of his mother because I don't, I don't know what, I suppose he just felt disrespected by the fact that she was incredible, which is ridiculous. And, yep. um, anyway, but, uh, it led to some, some physical abuse of his mom, um, at home and his mom, in, uh, had a weak heart and also she had a limp. I'm not sure uh, what the cause of that limp was, but Mahler, as he was growing up, he unconsciously adopted a slight limp mimicking his mom's. And so that was like a part of him was a part of his mom. And he also inherited, sadly, the the same weak heart that his mom yeah. had. And like we said before, he was a child prodigy. And his first performance ever was at the age of 10 playing, pi- uh, playing piano in Jalaba. Uh, and by 15, he was accepted to Vienna Good. Conservatory and earned his diploma there. Um, and he was awarded a number of piano and composition prizes. Oh, wow. Um, but he didn't earn the prestigious Beethoven Prize for composition, which really uh, was a blow to him. And so that's when he decided to start focusing on conducting as a means of lucrative employment rather than performance itself. Uh, or, excuse me, rather than composition. Uh-huh. So then over the next 17 years, he was working in opera houses and eventually became the artistic director of the Vienna Court Opera in 1897. Um, his musical expressions are considered to be autobiographical based on his personal outlook in life, which is why he's yep. uh, a great source of like interesting stories because you can hear how he was feeling through his life through a lot of his symphonies. So his composition career, which again wasn't appreciated until much later after he died, was... Uh, it was divided into three sort of creative periods, which each of which produced a symphonic trilogy. So the first period, which um, it, in his first creative period, the first three symphonies were all like super diverse. Um, one contained four movements with the fifth one being discarded and is accepted as like an autobiogra- autobiography of his life. Yeah. Um, and then the second one is known as Resurrection. It starts with death and ends with a celebration yep. of immortality. And then the third one in that first um, period, it's, quote, presents a Dionysian vision of a great chain of being in six movements. So already everything he does is is just grand mm-hmm. and huge and, and about, like, it's substantial works of art. And then he got married after that in, uh, in 1902. Um, sort of in the middle of his middle creative period. And he had two daughters with his wife, Alma Schindler, Alma Maria Schindler. Um, And during that middle period, his uh, reputation as a conductor was established, and he then composed five symphonies, um, some of his biggest ones. And he identified three personal blows in his uh, tragic symphony, which was number six uh, in that middle period, um, which was, one, his forced resignation at the Vienna Opera, they gave him boot. Um, the second was the death of his three-year-old daughter. Yep. And the third was his diagnosis of heart disease. Yep. So three really huge blows. Like you have um, personal within yourself, you have familial, and you have career. Yep. Three huge blows to him that um, were uh, expressed in his sixth symphony. And then yep. when he was 47... Um, he directed performances at the Metropolitan Opera in the United States yep. and then then became the conductor of the Philharmonic Society of New York. Um, and th- then his, his his work 
was really bitter around that point, um, especially in his last three symphonies or the the last trilogy, uh, last period of the trilogy. Um, and probably people assume because it he had had a life facing racial prejudice yeah. and a life of tragedy, and he just was going through it. <laughs> yeah. And um, as he got sort of to the end of his life and the end of uh, his final creative period, that's when it really started to come through in his work. Um, and sadly, he never actually heard those um, works in the last period uh, huh. performed. He passed away in 1911 while he was still composing Symphony Number no. 10. Um, and although no version can be called complete, there was um, a lot of research done on Number no. 10. And in 1960, they finished yep. the piece. There were some some people who were wow. analyzing his music of the past and That's how awesome. sort of uh, his trajectory in composition and decided to try and finish it. So technically, there is a finished version of Number no. 10, but it was it was done by... Um, not Mar, so it's not necessarily finished, but people did try to sort of recreate what they think the ending could have been, which is cool. Um, and then a couple like interesting thoughts to close out on Mahler. Um, he was known to suffer from nervous tension, skepticism, and an obsession with death, which is again evident in his music. Um, he was also an avid swimmer and a mountain walker, and uh, he converted to Christianity in 1897, and his symphonies largely reflect the themes of the Christian faith. Uh, like that's the beginning of that middle period. And so that middle period starts to really look at those um, big picture um, ideas with, with his faith. And um, lastly, which is really cool, there is an international Gustav Mahler society, which is headquartered in Vienna and is designed to promote research and scholarly studies about his work and the cultural history of his era. Um, which I thought was really cool. And I, I tried to visit their site, but it's all in a language that I cannot oh, read. No. <laughs> so um, Google Translate can't help you on that one real fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so just to wrap up Mahler, um, he lived during a really significant time of musical transition, mm-hmm. the, the mid-1800s to early 1900s. Um, as a yep. post-romantic period composer and conductor, his lasting influence foreshadowed the progressive tonality of the 20th century. And he was... Mm. He was he's a perfect example of the musician who was living through his art and whose art was reflecting his own life. Um mm-hmm. and in in later years, um, like we we talked about at the beginning, Nazi Germany, who had banned those famous Jewish conductors, um, Otto Klemperer and Bruno Walter, um, who were known for their interpretations of Mahler's work, um, eventually later on, they of course that would be lifted in, in forty five with um the defeat of yeah. Nazi Germany. But um Anyway, so he had a full life with lots of crazy stuff going on, but that's Mahler. That's interesting. Yeah, one, one day I, they were they were talking about um, Mahler on something I was listening to, um, and then I just decided to pull up YouTube and and some orchestra was playing Mahler's symphony, and so I listened to it. no, it was it was a book I was reading called um, oh, Okay, The Art of Possibility by Benjamin and, mm. and Roz Zander. Um, but anyway, they were they were they were talking about. Um, one of Mahler's symphonies, and so I listened to it on YouTube. It was like an hour or something, and just like yeah. put it on Alexa and playing it, and it was just like, this is lovely, and I really enjoy this, and I want to know more about him. So I'm glad we yep. picked him. I love it. I also uh, have experienced that with composers or just pieces. I'm like, who who wrote this? Because yeah. as artists, we're we're <laughs> in tune with hearing the emotion within music, <laughs> especially as musicians uh, in the sense of vocalists. Yeah. Um, 
so sometimes I'll hear something and be like, why do I want to cry? And then I'll look it up and realize either what it's about or uh, I love when people can tell me like what the composer was going through when they wrote it because you can just hear the emotion within that. Yeah. But that's a different story. Never mind. Anyway, so I had Monteverdi and his full name was Claudio Giovanni Antonio Monteverdi. Um, yeah, it reminds me of the Princess Diaries where, or yeah, Princess Diaries where it was like, Emilia Mignonette Ronaldi has <laughs> so many names. Uh, he was baptized May 15th, 1567, and he died November 29th, 1643. He was an Italian composer, choir master, and string player. Uh, he also, like Mahler, was um, a composer of both secular and sacred music and a pioneer in development of opera. He is considered a crucial transitional figure between the Renaissance and Baroque periods of music history. So anybody who's listening who's major music history nerd, you're going to get all the info. Uh, <laughs> so from the period of 1567 to 1591, um, there's no clear record of Monteverdi's early musical training or evidence that, as it is sometimes claimed, he was a member of the cathed- uh, cathedral choir or studied at uh, Saroma University. Monteverdi's first public works was a set of monets, or um, sacred songs, uh, for three voices, which issued in Venice in 1582 when he was only 15 years old. Wow. So I couldn't even imagine having a book when I was 15, <laughs> but uh, let alone just all that music. Yeah. In 1590 or 91, he entered in the service of Duke Finenzo. Yeah. Uh, Gonza of Mantua. Monteverdi married the court singer Claudia de Cantineas. In 1599, they were to have three children, two sons, Francesco, who was born in 1601, and Massimiliano, I believe is how you say it, in 1604. And they had a daughter, but she died soon after birth in 1603. He was then heavily considered by Vincino and accompanied him on his military campaigns in Hungary in 19, er, excuse me, in 1595. Mm and also on a visit to Flanders in 1599. On the death of Pavlincino in 1601, Monteverdi was confirmed as the new Maestro di Capella, which basically is a fancy choir director. Um, turn of the 17th century, uh, he was led into controversy for his earlier work <laughs> and leading to reprints. So I summed it up here. Basically, somebody accused him of using 16th century style wrong in his early prints and or in his prints into the 17th century they were like oh it's 16th century this isn't new so he had to reprint it and i i I was reading and i was like why is this basically the youtube apology of the 17th century like he was (laughs) like i'm sorry for doing what i did oh my gosh um so there was there was that little bit of controversy yeah uh but in 1606 vincino's heir francesco commissioned from Monteverdi the opera La Foro, I believe is how you say it. Uh, and it was a strain on Monteverdi because he had been putting into these and other compositions uh, personal tragedies. Yeah. His wife died in September 1607 and the young singer Katrina Montanelli, intended for the title role of Ariana, died of smallpox in March 1608. Uh, and- Monteverdi also resented his increasingly poor financial treatment uh, by his uh, supporters, so he retired to uh, Croma, Cremona, excuse me, in 1608, and wrote a bitter letter to Fincino's mister, basically just saying, "I want an honorable, I want out, I want an honorable dismissal, I, I need to go." 
Yeah. Um, then from 1613 to 1630, he took a position at San Marco as choir recruiter, trainer, discipliner, and manager. For those of you in theater, basically think of it as the stage manager that he did everything. He also wrote many various religious pieces and commissioned several operas. Um, yeah. And it's interesting to think of opera starting at that point because you think, it, oh, his opera's been forever. No, not really. Sure. Then he also, from 1625 to 1626, it was believed that he had a hobby of alchemy because in several discussions he had with people and some letters, he talked about turning lead into gold and being short on mercury and other various supplies, which I found interesting. Huh. It's like, you don't, <laughs> we think of each other in modern day having hobbies, but I mean, everybody's got a hobby of some kind. And then in 1630 to 1637, war, plague, and age, uh, his decrepit age was halting a lot of his musical life. Um, he he at one point, I can't, I'll, I'll send it to you, Easton, but I can't share it on the waves of our listeners. But he received a funny insult from one of the choir members that he was in charge of, basically just telling him that he didn't know what he was doing because of his age, and it's very funny, so I'll send it. <laughs> um, and then he died in Venice on November 29th, 1643. That's, that's <laughs> Monteverdi. Do you love enjoying a nice, warm mug of your favorite tea or coffee? Then you're going to love Carver Trading Company. Located in Orlando, Florida, they are proud to be veteran-owned family business that selects the finest green coffee directly from several growing regions around the world for a fresh farm-to-cup experience. They source coffee in a socially responsible and environmentally sustainable way that benefits the areas where the coffee is grown. From light roast to dark, including blends like Colombian, Donut Store, and a Costa Rica selection, they also provide decaf and a wide variety of tea blends that pair perfectly with any rainy day or cozy evening with a good book. They also have gift cards available, making the perfect gift for that coffee or tea lover in your life who is, let's say, particular with their drink preferences. Not only are their products delicious, but they are wonderful people too. Definitely fit the good beans category in our books. So check out the link in our show notes for a 10% off discount today. Cool. He's one that I don't, that I've never really known too much about. It, I, so. I think it may be because of one, the transitional age. I, I know from my first degree transitional periods of music were always hard because you had someone who was in both so it was hard to consider them both you would try to put them in to this category and this category to remember but they were technically both so yeah i know his, his music is is nice that's what i know <laughs> who we got next we've got rachmaninoff sergey vasil okay wait hang on <laughs> sergey vasilievich rachmaninoff beautiful Maybe. So, anyway, <laughs> um, uh, if you couldn't tell, he's a Russian mm. composer. What? Uh, he was also, <laughs> similarly to um, Mahler, he was a pianist and a conductor mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachmaninoff is widely considered one of the finest pianists of his day, and as a composer, he was one of the, the last, uh, the, one of the last composers who really represented uh, the Romanticism mm-hmm. um, in Russian classical music. His early influences were Tchaikovsky and Rimsky-Korsakov and um, some other Russian composers who gave way to, they, they call it a thoroughly personal idiom, mm. notable for its song-like melodicism, expressiveness, dense contrapuntal textures, and rich orchestral colors. Mm. Ah, music. Um, 
the piano is featured prominently in Rachmaninoff's compositional um, output, and he used his skills as a performer to fully explore the expressive and technical possibilities of the instrument. So he sort of paved the way for piano, not paved the way, but he um, sort of uh, reimagined how pianos could be worked into compositions, um, orchestral compositions. Oh, okay. And um, because nice. he was a virtuoso at the piano. And so he was like, yeah. I can do this. I'm going to make it work. <laughs> um, anyway, so he was born on April Fool's Day. Oh. Uh, of 1873 haha and he passed in 1943 so he was 69 when he died um so here's here's like 15 quick facts or go here's 10 quick facts about Rachmaninoff Sergei Vasilyevich Rachmaninoff was born into a musical family of the Russian aristocracy in Semyonovo on April 1st woohoo his paternal grandfather Arkady Alexandrovich was a musician who had taken lessons from Irish composer John Field. Wow, John Field is an easy name to say compared <laughs> to everything these, else in Rachmaninoff's life. <laughs> uh, and then when Sergei was nine, uh, financial difficulties forced the family to sell their estate. <laughs> and then they moved to St. Petersburg, which is where he started taking piano lessons at a conservatory there. Um, and then later on, he went to Moscow and attended the conservatory or the Moscow Conservatory. Yeah. Uh, and that's where he studied with Nikolai Zverev and his cousin, Alexander Salodi. Yeah. And this is also the same time that he received advice from Tchaikovsky, like mm. himself. Yes. Who is a friend of Salodi yes. and his former teacher. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, his first symphony was premiered in Moscow in 1897. Yeah. And according to reports at the time, it was a disaster. Oh, no. Uh, due to a lack of rehearsal. Oh, no. And rumored drunkenness oh, on no. part of the conductor. <laughs> and because the critics were so harsh, Rachmaninoff entered a four-year depression, oh, which ended, thankfully, due to successful therapy mm. um, with his lauded piano concerto number two. Mm. So... Uh, then we're in 1905, the yeah. time of the Russian Revolution, uh-huh. and uh, this t- during this time, Rachmaninoff was a conductor at the Bolshoi Theater. B- Bolshoi? Bolshoi? I think it's, I Bolshoi. Think it's Bolshoi. I sure, that one. Nah, we'll go with that one. Uh, and in <laughs> November 1906, uh, his family and he moved to Dresden, and while he was there, he wrote three of his major scores, Symphony Number no. 2 in E minor, uh, the Isle of the Dead and Piano Concerto Number no. Three in D minor, and then yeah. he returned to Russia in 1910. Uh, then, okay, so Number yeah. Six, his third piano concerto was written for a 20 concert tour of the United States, where it was played twice in New York under the direction of Gustav Mahler. Yeah, boom, boom, connections, connections. <laughs> he was so successful in the United States that he was then offered the position of conductor of the the Boston Symphony Orchestra twice. And he declined in favor of returning to Russia, where he accepted the position of vice president of the Imperial Music Society. So it's, it's so cool to me that there was this moment in time where Mahler and Rachmaninoff were both existing in the same space. And Rachmaninoff was much older. Um, or not much, much older, but... Not much, but still. Also, for you listening, we did not know that these composers crossed Yeah, all. no. We chose based off feeling and or no knowledge of what we knew. So the fact that these are all connecting the dots, yeah, total news to us. Oh no, Mahler was not older by any. Mahler was older, seventy three by thirteen years. Oh wow! So he just he just died a lot sooner than Rachmaninoff, which I, I guess I just didn't realize. Um, Interesting. So how old was Mahler when he passed? 
Yeah, so he was 61. Good. And Rachmaninoff lived to 69. Okay. Oh, wow. Cool. Interesting. So, anyway, but yeah. Mahler was, was about 10 years older. So, anyway, uh, Rachmaninoff was, was um, in the United States, and his composition was being conducted by Mahler, and they were there in the same microcosm of time, which is cool. Yeah. Because you, you hear about and see figures of history like being places, but you never think of them like existing in the same world. Yeah. Like how Anne Frank and Martin Luther King Jr. were born in the same year. Yep. And it's like, wait, that doesn't mm-hmm. feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's cool. But then he left. He went to Russia instead mm-hmm. of conducting the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And then after the October Revolution in mm-hmm. 1917 in Russia, Rachmaninoff then left again uh, mm-hmm. with his family. Yeah. And they never returned to Russia. They stayed briefly in Stockholm and Copenhagen before yeah. they sailed to America in November of 1918. So, uh, in the United States, his piano and conducting performances were in great demand. His yeah. touring schedule was so busy, he he completed um, only six works between 1918 and 1943. Wow. Because he was so in demand. He was like, well, yeah. I only got time to make six. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Rachmaninoff had... Possibly the largest hands in classical music, which is why some of his I've pieces are so difficult to play. He, he yeah. could span 12 piano keys from the tip of his little finger to the tip of his thumb. What? 12. I could do nine, 12. but still, geez. Yeah, and so that's why some of his stuff is so difficult, because yeah. he had such big hands. And he was like, well, I can do it, so you should. Yeah. This sounds like, this sounds like uh, a certain composer that is, does musical theater. Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then last, by the time of his final tour in 1943, he was already seriously ill. Yeah. And uh, this this article says, it seems almost prophetic that his final recital in February 1943 included Chopin's famous funeral march. And he died of melanoma yeah. a month later in Beverly Hills, four days before his 70th birthday. Wow. One of the pieces in his very last recital was that's a funeral it. march, which is really cool. And that's, yeah, crazy. that's something similar to our next artist as well, which we'll get into. And who is that? So we have Tchaikovsky. Woohoo! Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, I believe is how you say it. Bless you. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he was born May 7th, 1840, and died November 6th, 1893. Uh, he was a Russian composer of the Romantic period. He was the first Russian composer whose music would be uh, would make a lasting impression internationally. Uh, so just just before uh, Rachmaninoff, okay. um, Tchaikovsky wrote some of the most popular concert and theater, uh, theatrical music in the current classical repertoire, including the ballets Swan Lake and the Nutcracker, the 1812 Overture, his first piano concerto, violin concerto, the, Rom- the Romeo and Juliet Overture Fantasy, several symphonies, and the opera Eugene Onjin, I believe is how you say it. I could be wrong. Take my degree away. Uh <laughs> In his early life, in 1844, the family hired Fanny Durbach, a 22-year-old French governess. Four-and-a-half-year-old Tchaikovsky was uh, initially thought too young to study alongside his older brother Nikolai and niece of the family. His insistence convinced the nanny otherwise, and by age six, he had become fluent in French and German. Oh, whoa. Uh, Yeah, right? Uh... And her affection for him was reportedly a counter to his mother's coldness and emotional distance from him, though others assert that the mother doted on her son. So it's mm. it's mixed whether the mom was nice or not. Yeah. Um. But it led to a lot of uh, the sadness within his pieces. 
but Tchaikovsky began piano lessons at age five. Within three years, he had become as adept at reading sheet music as his teacher. Wow. Uh, Tchaikovsky's parents, initially supportive, hired a tutor, uh, bought an orchestrion, or orchestrion, yeah. is a form of barrel organ that could imitate elaborate orchestral effects. Wow. So uh, think of um, garage band of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and encouraged his piano study for both aesthetic and practical reasons. However, they decided in 1850 to send Tchaikovsky to the Imperial School of Jurisprudence at St. Petersburg. They had both graduated from institutes at St. Petersburg and the School of Jurisprudence, uh, which mainly served as lesser nobility and thought that this education would pre uh, prepare Tchaikovsky for a career as a civil servant. At the time in Russia, there was no career in music other than teaching or mm. uh, being an instrumentalist at, at the time. Um, being too young, however, at 10, when they tried to send him for the entry, uh, entry age was 12. Okay. So he um, was 800 miles from his family for two years, and then he was still that far away for the rest of his school time. Wow. But he, uh, he drew close to his lifelong friends uh, within the students, uh, who he had interactions with basically his entire life. Uh, his father paid for lessons from Rudolf Kundenberg, <laughs> or Kundinger, uh, who saw no future talent in his student, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but it was because the teacher uh, had his own personal troubles as a musician and career in Russia, so he was basically just dissuading him because he had a bad experience. Huh. It's like, don't do that. No. Just because you have a bad one, give everybody a chance. Yeah. So in 1859, after graduating at 19, he began his three-year civil servant position. Uh, he was a titular counselor, and then a junior assistant, then senior assistant. But he did that in under a year's time, basically about nine or ten months he moved up in the ranks. Wow. Uh, St. Petersburg Conservatory opened in 1862, and Tchaikovsky enrolled at the conservatory as part of its premier class. Um, I don't have it written down here, but I remember reading that he took a theory class before the conservatory opened, and that's where he learned about um, harmony and counterpoints yeah. and things like that. But when he en enrolled in the conservatory, he studied harmony and counterpoint with uh, Zaremba and instrumental instrumentation and comp composition with Rubinstein. Huh. He was awarded a silver medal for his thesis, a cantata on Sch uh, Schiller's Ode to Joy. Uh, the conservatory benefited Tchaikovsky in two ways, though. It transformed him into a musical professional with the tools to help him thrive as a composer, and the in-depth exposure to European principles and musical forms gave him a sense that his art was not exclusively Russian or Western. <laughs> so he could he could uh, see it in both different ways. Uh, once Tchaikovsky graduated in 1865, Rubinstein's brother Nikolai offered him the post of Professor of Music Theory at the soon-to-open Moscow Conservatory. <laughs> Uh, while the salary was poor, the offer itself boosted Tchaikovsky's morale, and he accepted the post eagerly. But during this time of position, he took music, he took to music criticism. In his reviews, he praised Beethoven, considered Brahms overrated, and despite his admiration, took Schumann <laughs> to task for poor orchestration. <laughs> Very critique. Um, his personal life, it was believed, and this is this was interesting and fascinating to me. It was believed that he was a homosexual, but was also married at one point. Married to a man? No, he was married to a woman. That was, okay. That was that was. I was gonna say that was part. really progressive for that time. <laughs> yeah, I know that would have been that would have been better. 
Um, between <laughs> stories and personal letters and uh, recollections from family and friends, uh, it confirms the truth. And there are within the article I was reading, there are several quotes where he openly was like he enjoyed company of men. He enjoyed um, men with beards was the funny one that I read. He was like, <laughs> I like good music and men with beards. <laughs> Um, That's funny. And then he, Tchaikovsky lived a bachelor for most of his life. In 1868, he met Bill, uh, Belgian soprano Desiree Atort, I believe is how you say it, with whom he considered marriage. But owing various circumstances, the relationship ended, and Tchaikovsky later claimed that she was the only woman he ever loved. <laughs> um, but in 1877, at age of 37, he wed a former student, Antoniana uh, Milukova, I believe is how you say it. <laughs> and the marriage was a disaster. They were mis mismatched physically and sexually, and the couple oh, no. lived together for only two and a half months before Tchaikovsky left, Aww. overwrought emotionally and suffering from acute writer's block. Oh, Tchaikovsky's gosh. family remained supportive of him during this crisis and throughout his life, which was uh, very good. But uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, marital debacle may have forced him to face the full truth about his sexuality. Yeah. However, he never blamed uh, Antoniana for the failure of their marriage. <laughs> uh, Tchaikovsky was also aided by Nadezhda von Meck, uh, the widow of a railway main gate, who had begun to contact him not long before the marriage. As well as an important friend and emotional support, she became his patroness for the next 13 years, Ooh. which allowed him to focus exclusively on composition. Cool. Although Tchaikovsky called her his best friend, they agreed to never meet under any circumstances. <laughs> to never meet? So, a sugar mama, for lack of a better That's word. That's hilarious. Yeah, they, they never met. Wait, they never met at all? Nope. They just wrote letters and she gave him money. That's what's crazy yeah. to me. <laughs> Um, then wow. he went into a period of years of wandering, which was founded by Von Meck and leading to pieces like his fourth symphony, 1812 overture, violin concerto, and his piano trio in A minor. Um, funnily enough, the 1812 overture, mm. for those who aren't familiar and for those who are, it is one of the only symphonies that has an actual canon written into the score. Like there is a canon shot written in the sheet music, huh. and you have to have a live cannon loaded and ready. I don't know how they perform it now, unless it's just sound effect. But uh, Tchaikovsky wrote about it to uh, Von Meck, his sponsor, and was basically like, it's very loud. Uh, I don't know if anybody's going to like it, but here it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 1884, Tchaikovsky began to shed his unsociability and re uh, restlessness. And that March, Emperor Alexander III conferred upon him uh, the Order of St. Vladimir, a fourth class, which included Ooh. a title of heredita hereditary nobility and a personal audience with the Tsar. This was seen as a seal of Ooh. official approval which advanced Tchaikovsky's social standing and might have been cemented in the composer's mind by the success of his orchestral suite number three. At its January 1855, 1885 premiere in St. Petersburg, in addition, at the instigation of Ivan, oh, I don't want to try, somebody named Ivan, <laughs> director of the Imperial Theaters and a patron of the composer, Tchaikovsky was awarded a lifetime annual pension of 3,000 rubles from the Tsar. Whoa. This made him the premier court composer in practice, if not in actual title. Wow. I know, right? Uh, Tchaikovsky hated, hated public <laughs> life. 
but felt duty to take some time during this to promote Russian music through teaching, guidance, and conducting. Mm. He helped overcome that. Uh, conducting helped him overcome his lifelong stage fright oh. and boosted his self-assurance. Well, that's good. So it's good to know that stage fright is shared by major <laughs> composers. <laughs> In 1893, Tchaikovsky conducted the premiere of his sixth symphony, the Pathétique, in St. Petersburg. Nine days later, on November 6th, Tchaikovsky died there at age 53. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing about Tchaikovsky's death is it actually is still rumored as to what exactly it was. Um, Tchaikovsky's death is attributed to cholera caused by drinking unboiled water at a local restaurant. Mm. Ironically enough, that's how his mother died as well. Well, wow. His father contracted it, but actually um, recovered from it. But uh, in the 1980s in Britain, however, they there was academic speculation that he killed himself either with poison or by contracting cholera intentionally. Eh. So that is the ending note of the who knows about Tchaikovsky. Wow. But that's Tchaikovsky, everyone. Huh. That's crazy. I didn't realize that there was speculation over his death like that. I know, right? Yeah. Well, nice. That was fun. Learned some stuff. I know. I had, I had fun with this. Yeah. I learned a little bit. Uh-huh. Just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Just a little bit. Oh, do we want to talk about coffee? Yes. I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't catch any of the notes, but I think uh-huh. my taster's off just because the allergies are hitting me. But yeah, it it's really good. I enjoyed it. I thought the same. It um, You can tell that it's, it's fresh and... Um, the notes say, oh, shoot, I didn't finish it all. I have some left. Hooray. What a nice surprise. There's a, a guy on YouTube. James Hoffman is his name. Anyway, but James Hoffman is Mr. Coffee. He's amazing. He's great. Mm. And um, anyway, but he was talking about how, like, as coffee cools down, you can taste it better. The closer it is to your body temperature, the better you can taste it. Huh. Um, and now that it is my, yeah, I know, right? And now that it is my temperature, um, I can taste the, the notes better than I was able to before, which is really cool. But um, I definitely got some chocolate. It's yep. really nice. Um, like yeah, the website says semi sweet, and that's what I was about to say. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's it's nice and sweet. It is. It's a nice cup of joe. Yeah, honestly, I really love that chocolate taste. That's really nice and chocolatey. Yeah. Honestly, it's like um, chocolate milk as coffee is what I get. Yep. I really like that. I do too. I think I would love this as a an iced coffee. That's a better idea. We'll now do that. I think in about it in the later years of summer. <laughs> yeah, we'll do an iced coffee episode. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. I'm gonna try that as an iced coffee later. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Cool. So that's coffee. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. And anything else before I send us I, off? I I think that's I think... um tell a friend yes, about the please. show. If you enjoyed this episode with the research. And the composers let us know. We're we're trying different things, so let us know. Yeah, let us know what you like. Um, if you want to support the show, you can go to the the show notes, and there's a little buy me a coffee link in there, which just helps to yes um, help us get the equipment and the software that we need to keep doing this. Um, because it's not free, but we like to do it just for fun. And if you want to support it and help us make more content and help us continue to do what we're doing. Um, you can do that. You can also, um, if, if you're a, a vocalist uh, or if you use your voice, we have an affiliate link for Vocal Mist, um, which is like a portable nebulizer, which I use uh-huh. all the time now. Um, anytime I'm doing um, Voices of Liberty, I will use that halfway through the day and it relieves a lot of stress and pressure. Uh, I'll also use it on like two show days yep. in between shows. It is lovely. It can, it, can, it's a, it was a game changer for me, honestly. Also by Endeavor, 
Coffee Roasters Coffee and Support uh, Helping Hands Grateful Hearts. It's a lovely cause. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening. I guess that's it. So I'm going to send this out. Raise your mugs if you've still got your mug with you. Uh, and never forget, my dear friends, to be good beans and drink good beans. Yeah. Have a good day, everybody. Have a good one. The Artist's Blend theme music was written and produced by Christopher and Sarah Bailey of Well Wishes Productions, a Nashville-based boutique production company specializing in multimedia production, live event contracting, studio, and live vocals. Find Incognita's infamous adventures on Amazon Prime and its soundtrack on all digital platforms.